Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. Is out. Look, at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli here in the Passball Show. Brought to you by JohnPielli.com. ton of different things to get into as normal. I got a couple solid interviews set up that you're going to get a chance to hear. We're definitely going to hear from former Major League outfielder Glenn Wilson, who played the better part of the 80s with the Philadelphia Phillies and, of course, came up with the Tigers, played a couple other teams throughout his career, and former Philly shortstop Steve Jeltz. So you're going to hear that over the duration of the program, plus you know maybe another spot or two here and there. But always a reminder, anything I talk about, it's my rants, my discussions, my interviews, uh, the stuff that I talk about on Bases Empty Blog, uh, always an interactive program here on the Past Ball Show. You could definitely tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. That's John underscore P-I-E-L-L-I, and we'll keep the discussion going that way. But a couple different things we're going to get into. I got into a ton of stuff this week with Bases Empty Blog. There's a bunch of different topics that I do want to hit up in regards to that. But before that, we're going to get on to some of contemporary baseball, some stuff going on with you know, the New York Mets. And obviously, if you're a fan of the team and you heard this week, it couldn't have been any more devastating news to hear that the one bright spot on an on a organization that has been struggling over the last several seasons, um, the Mets may be without him. And Matt Harvey, obviously, the news coming down that he has the, uh, the UCL injury, Tommy John surgery is quite a possibility. And though, uh, you know, it's not 100% that he's going to have the operation, but, you know, it doesn't look good. I mean, more than likely he's done for this year, even if he does choose to rehab. And obviously, Tommy John surgery will pull him, put him out for the balance of a calendar year. And, you know, obviously, if you're a New York Mets fan, it's the last thing you wanted to hear. You wanted to have some hope. And I, and I felt this way all along. And, you, you know, you get some bad blood with fans of, you know, teams like the Yankees or the Phillies or, you know, if you're not a Mets fan, you know, you sit there and you're, you smile and you're happy about it. I mean, you, you know what? Listen, Mets fans, there's plenty of Mets fans that are, that are garbage that do the same thing. But, you know, for, for the diehard baseball fan, it, it's t- the worst news to hear that, you know, your best player is going to be out for an extended period of time. 
And, you know, if, if the same thing happened to the Phillies' best player, the same thing happened to the Yankees' best player, I got to be honest, I would be part of the group that would not go out and say good and laugh about it and make like it's a big joke. But, you know, unfortunately, there's plenty of fans out there in a new age of media and everybody's got a Twitter handle and, you know, you don't even have to put your own name behind it. You know, you go out there and you're going to say a bunch of stupid things. And, you know, like I said, you know, plenty of Mets fans that are offended because fans of other teams are, you know, are happy that Matt Harvey's hurt would probably go the same route. You know, maybe you got, maybe you were glowing over Derek Jeter's injury. Maybe you'd be happy as anything that Roy Halladay is out and Ryan Howard, you know, had that injury at the end of the, uh, the NLCS or the NLDS in 2009. And, and that's the way baseball fans are. You know, there, there's a lot of mean spirit involved. And, you know, it's something I don't condone by any stretch of the imagination. And obviously it kind of takes it close to home when it happens to your team and your guy. And you look at the season that Matt Harvey has had, of course, the starting pitcher in a National League All-Star game, very deserved, you know, sitting there where he sits in ERA, leading the league in strikeouts at the moment, being a dominating pitcher and legitimately having a chance to beat anybody anytime he goes and takes the hill. It's obviously a devastating loss, and not just for this year, but for next year. And I may be in a small minority when it comes to this. You know, a lot of people are just like, hey, go ahead, have the surgery, come back as soon as you can. Well, you know what? I, I think Tommy John surgery has gotten to a point where it's just suggested for everything. You get, you know, you have a certain tear in the, you know, the UCL, you know, ligament in, in your, you know, in your elbow, and it, it's it's always assumed that that's the way it has to go. And obviously, you know, we live in a day and age where you know many pitchers, and you know, a, a, an alarming stat was the fact that 33% of pitchers in Major League Baseball have that scar on their arm. That means that they've had Tommy John surgery and are pitching in the major leagues. So it's becoming a situation where people are just thinking that that's the way it has to go. But I think it's going to come down to, and Scott Boris has brought it up, and I think Matt Harvey has suggested it, and even Sandy Alderson to a certain extent kind of gave the idea that they're at least going to consider trying a rehab process with Matt Harvey. And, you know, a lot of Mets fans, they're, they're done with the season. Obviously, they just can't wait to get on the next year. And obviously, if Matt Harvey's going to have Tommy John surgery, it's better off to do it now than to wait. And I understand that point. But what if he doesn't need it? And I think it's really going to come down to the percentage of tear that he has in, in his elbow. Uh, you know, the, the fact that he was telling you he was not having shooting pains up his arm. He wasn't feeling any numbness. Those are all different symptoms that you have when a pitcher, you know, his ligament is right about, you know, in a, in a, in a serious position. And I think it'll be very valuable to know. And I don't know if the Mets would necessarily make it public. I don't know if Dr. David Alchek would go out there and say, all right, this is the exact percentage that it's torn. But I think it's a situation where there are rehab uh, possibilities in regards to getting the, getting the thing back and maybe it could regrow. And, you know, the bottom line is this is the way I look at it. And like I said, a lot of people may disagree with me. Shoot me a tweet at John underscore PL. I got no issue with that whatsoever. But, you know, if you rehab it and he comes back and maybe doesn't pitch this year but is ready for spring training in 2014, look at where the Mets would be as opposed to where they are now because you're assuming that he's going to have the operation and he's going to be done for 2014. Wouldn't you like to have a pitcher like that on your team if he was healthy and able to pitch? The answer is yes. And if it turns out after you try rehab and you try the strength and conditioning and see if he can get – the, the ligaments in his arm to respond to the treatment, if it doesn't work out, you're missing him for the season anyway. 
So that, that's the way I look at it. The bottom line is if he has the operation, he's probably not coming back in 2014 anyway. If he has the operation tomorrow. And I know fans are like, hey, just get it over with. Come on, let's go already. But no, you know, you, you see if there's any other options. See if Tommy John is the absolute worst case scenario as opposed to what it is as assumed to already have happened. And if he could somehow rehab over the next couple months, and I'm not talking about having a guy back on the mound. If he's done for the year, he's done for the year. Mets got nothing to play for. But if somehow he's able to get himself into a routine where he could pitch with a little bit of pain and a tear of his arm is not, not in a position where it could progressively get worse, then I say you go for it. And I say you allow him to rehab and allow him to come back because surgery is not always the answer. And that's, that's the way I feel about that. And you talk about the same team, and obviously the Matt Harvey news well, was, was probably the last, uh, the last nail in the coffin in regards to the Mets in the 2013 season, uh, a season that didn't seem to be going anywhere. Got off to a bad start. They played some really rough baseball over the first couple months of the season and played some inspired baseball over the better part of about a month and a half. They're obviously, you know, at the moment I'm broadcasting on a five-game losing streak, I'm expecting them to lose a couple more games here and there than they're going to win. But the turning point is the Matt Harvey injury, the fact that Matt Harvey is not going to pitch for the Mets for the rest of the season. And, you know, that, that has gotten the Mets into a point where they're like, hey, just dump it. And I don't know if, I don't know if they're going to intentionally tank the season. I don't think they're going to try to lose games. But they're going to be playing the games of the rest of this season with less talented players than they had to start the season. And I understand nobody's, nobody's out there expecting the New York Mets to go out there and make a playoff push. Nobody cares about the Mets finishing in third place or second place if they're going to be you know, 15, 20 games behind the first place Atlanta Braves. It doesn't matter where they fit in the, finish in the standings. But the bottom line is they have to have themselves in a position where they put the best possible team on the field. And the Mets, of course, making the trade with the Pittsburgh Pirates, sending outfielder Marlon Byrd and catcher John Buck to the Pirates for a young infielder by the name of uh, Dilson Herrera and a player to be named later, I, I don't know what to make out of it. Yeah, I, I know the Mets' best offensive player this season has been Marlon Byrd. You could say David Wright, but David Wright's been hurt for a while. He's been out for almost a month. You're going to see David Wright pretty soon. But the Mets' best offensive player this year has been Marlon Byrd. And you could get into discussion about, uh, well, you know what, the Mets got him for a bargain deal. They got him on a minor league contract. Marlon Byrd had something to prove, so you got his best foot forward, and he probably overperformed to what he's capable of doing throughout his career. And I agree with all that. But at the same time, is Marlon Byrd better for the New York Mets playing right field for the Mets? Or are the Mets better off with him playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates when the Pirates have gotten better and the Mets have not necessarily gotten better? And the answer to that question will all be answered when we see what we got in this Dilson Herrera guy, who, you know, I follow my major league prospects. I don't know enough about him. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, and, and I don't think anybody would have expected the Mets to go get a blue chip, legitimate top prospect from another team in a trade for Marlon Bird. And even throw John Buck in there. And I think John Buck will help the Pirates as well, giving them a, you know, a backup catcher. Remember, Michael McHenry is out, I believe, for the rest of the season. So they do need a backup catcher behind Russell Martin. And, you know, his leadership, you know, Marlon Byrd and John Buck going to the playoffs, good for them. They deserve it. They deserve the opportunity. And hopefully, you know, I wish them both the best because they were very, very, uh, very much class acts in, in their season with the New York Mets. But, you know, the question I have, and this is a question that a lot of other people don't really want to get into, 
Because once your team stinks, once the team's not good anymore, the whole thought process changes. It's like, I don't care if they win another game. I just want to see players that are 23 and under. And it's not necessarily the best case scenario. So I'm going to judge this trade, whether it's good or bad, based on what Dilson Herrera is. Because if Dilson Herrera you know, you know, is a marginal major league player, if he is a Joachim Arias or less, then this is a bad trade. Because the Mets might as well have just run the players that they had out there and put the best team on the field possible. Now, if Dilson Herrera becomes a platoon player, if he becomes an option as a shortstop, you know, John Heyman reported that, you know, him as a shortstop, though he's played most of his time at second base. Could the Mets think that maybe he could play a little bit of shortstop this year for the New York Mets and maybe next year? Listen, if he does, then Sandy Alderson looks like a genius. But if not, then I question him making his trade. Because when your team stinks, you know, it's not your responsibility to make the rest of the league better. If you're not improving your own team, there's no point in making a trade. And I don't care who you are when you say that. Because, you know, the insistence now is that whenever your team is not any good, you just get rid of your good players and make other teams better. And that's what you're saying when you make that statement. You're not saying that you're getting your own team better. Because when you say the word prospects, I want to hear names. I want you to go out there and throw out a player that you're going to get back for trading this player. And if that player can somehow be equal to or around at least what you're giving up, then it's a good trade and it's worthwhile to do. But if not, you should question whether or not you're making a move like that. And obviously, you know what the way it's going to be for the Mets for the rest of August and September. You're going to see, you know, the Matt Dendeckers of the world. You're going to see more of Juan Lagares, Wilmer Flores will be playing somewhere. Maybe you'll even see this Herrera guy. You're going to see a lot of younger players as the Mets make try the best they can to make intelligent decisions to get themselves in a position to be competitive in the 2014 season. But what I, what I find funny, and this is, this, is, this is kind of what makes me laugh, because a lot of the same fans are saying, get younger, bring in a bunch, you know, your homegrown team. Let a, you know, let a one through eight in your lineup be all guys that are 23 and under and all groomed from your own minor league system are the same ones that say, Sandy Alderson's got to go out there and spend. So all these young players... And listen, I, I'm, I'm all, I'm all for the young guy. I, I don't mind a young player coming up and getting a chance to prove what he can do. And maybe some of these players prove out to be better than what we think they're going to be. But that being said, the offseason's going to come, and what are these same fans that are saying, bring in the kids, bring in the kids, going to say? Spend some money. Get an outfielder. Get a first baseman. Get a shortstop. Get another pitcher. Upgrade the team in this way, this way, and this way if you want to be competitive this season. And I'm in no way advocating that the Mets throw away 2014 like they did 2013 and 2012. And even to some extent 2011. Though I think in 2011 they had a better chance to succeed than they've had since. You throw away 2014 when you you roll over a bunch of young players. And you have to hit a certain point during the development process of a team that you have to go out there and make a significant move. And I don't know what that player is. We've talked about the free agent market on this show. We've talked about the Jacoby Ellsbury's, the Curtis Grandersons, the Shinsu Chus, you know, the guys that could be available through trade like Giancarlo Stanton and Carlos Gonzalez. You know, you could even throw Carlos Beltran in the mix. You know, Marlon Berg coming back, which, you know, I, I think it, any chance that that happened is absolutely shot now, now that, now that the Mets have traded him. But you talk about all the different options of what the Mets should do. I don't see a major league outfield based on what the Mets have right now. 
you know, you want to throw Ligaris out there. You want to throw Matt Dendecker out there. You want to put Cesar Puello, once he's done serving his 50-game biogenesis suspension, in right field. And I don't, I don't think that's a very good outfield. I could deal with one of them. I could deal with a, a surefire defensive center fielder like you got in Juan Ligaris and like you should have in Matt Dendecker. If you want to even platoon those guys in center field, I got no issue going forward with that. That being said, they got to upgrade. They got to upgrade right field. They got to upgrade left field. They probably got to upgrade either first base or shortstop. And the Mets will make a decision this offseason of whether or not they want to go forward with Ike Davis and want to go forward with Ruben Tejada. And if they do that, good for them. They have enough faith. It's on those guys to step it up. If they don't step it up, then they're going to they're gonna take the wrath of the New York Mets fan base. And now Ike Davis is in a situation where maybe the Mets don't have the trade value for Mike Davis that they had coming off of his season last year. And I think I was certainly in the majority when I felt that Ike Davis's finish last year was a start of something special. And you look at the guy this year, he has struggled. He struggled mightily for the better part of the season until he was sent down to AAA. He has come back. He's become more of a threat to get on base via the walk. He's not striking out as much. He's getting some hits. The average is over 200. But I'm still not feeling that Ike Davis is anywhere near the player that he was at the end of last season. Now, if the Mets trade him after the year, what does that do? It minimizes the value you're going to get back because other teams are going to say the same thing that the New York Mets are saying. Can he be that player that hit 32 home runs last year? Odds are probably not. Will a team take a chance on him? Sure. But you're not going to you're not going to get a significant return for Ike Davis hitting 7 home runs and driving in 30 runs in 2013 season. So I think those are all different things you got to consider. And like I said, feel free to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. We're going to do right now is we're going to take our first break of the program. Be back with a lot more stuff going on. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Back after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. You're listening to MTR Radio, powered by mtrmedia.com. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. 
in your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. M-T-R. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Obviously, first hour of the program here, and what we're going to do is we're going to segue into our first interview of the day, and that's going to be with former Phillies outfielder Glenn Wilson. And Glenn was a pretty good power-hitting outfielder, very strong throwing arm, a right fielder, who played the better part of the 80s with the Phillies, came up with the Tigers, finished his career with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and had a 100 RBI season. He won a gold glove. You know, he was a, was a very, very good outfielder, an integral part of the Phillies teams of the mid to late 80s. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Phillies outfielder Glenn Wilson. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League outfielder Glenn Wilson. Glenn, thanks for having a couple minutes, man. Oh, thank you for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely, man. Now you, you of course had a you know nice career throughout the better part of the eighties with you know the Tigers and the Phillies and teams like that. Um, you know, you started out. You know, you were t- you're, you're drafted pretty early by the Detroit Tigers. Tell us a little bit about you know your path to the major leagues. Oh man, it was an interesting path. Uh, you know, I I did not uh, really um, think about being a major league baseball player. I always wanted to be a pro football player. And, uh, John in high school, I didn't have any uh, baseball offers, uh, and I had one one scholarship. Uh, but, you know, I was an orphan. Uh, my dad uh, he was gone, and mom was raising three boys. And she told us that uh, if we didn't go to college on a scholarship, that we would go to work at one of the power plants there in the Pasadena Houston area and uh, pay rent, so I was just very, very fortunate that Sam Houston State here in Huntsville, Texas uh, made me an offer to play college football, and they paid for everything, and uh, baseball coach's name was John Skeeters, and he was the receiver's coach, and I had been invited to a Cincinnati Reds tryout camp uh, two weeks before two-day football practices started, and that day... Uh, just a, uh, a camp, rather, it was a three-day camp. I made it through all three days. And it was real interesting because uh, that day I was offered 30 junior college scholarships. And uh, the Reds told me, I'll never forget Johnny Roseboro tell, telling me that you were too slow, you'd never make it to the major leagues. And being the cocky jerk that I was back in the day, I told him, I'll remember you said that. And uh, <laughs> so I went off and played my college football for two years, and uh, next thing I know, I'm hearing that I might be a, a draft pick for baseball. Because the baseball coach had said, hey, if you want to play baseball too, you can. And so I did, because I guess you cut you out of spring football. <laughs> <laughs> Saved your body a little bit. Sure enough, uh, after my junior year, the Tigers came calling, and that was back when the Tigers were drafted athletes, uh, two sport guys who had taken Gibson two years 
pretty interesting you end up playing a couple years with the tigers and then uh you know you happen to be traded a year before they win the world series of course the deal you were involved in was a pretty significant deal you go into the phillies uh you know in in a deal with uh john walkenfuss for willie hernandez and dave bergman of course you know willie hernandez had that that cy young year in 84 uh tell us from your perspective how, how it felt from going to from the tigers to the phillies
several other big name players, Tony Perez, Joe Morgan, all those guys were on their way out. And the new, the new regime was uh, Bon Hayes, myself, get Joe LaFave, and Nick Matusak, a lot of younger players that weren't ready uh, you know, to compete against uh, teams like the Mets with full of superstars. And uh, for me, it was devastating. At the end of that year, watching the Tigers win the World Series, uh, I literally thought about suicide. <laughs> wow. And that's the truth. It was it was it was just devastating and you know, in a sport for me, uh, my first big negative issue to happen. Uh, watching the Tiger celebrate in the clubhouse afterward with, with all the guys that the only guys I knew in professional baseball. It was very, very tough. And I had struggled my first year there in Philly. Uh, Everett was comfortable at that during my first year. Uh, felt like an outsider, even though I was on the inside. Uh, still learning my new teammates. Basically, I had Mike Schmidt, Steve Carlton, Doug McGill, with the big names. You had Jerry Kuzman in there. Since uh, Kobe had come over. And as far as offense, we, we, we didn't have anybody from Mike, uh, really. Had a great pitch hitter and great growth. And you know, the rest of the holes had to be filled in, and we were all trying to figure out where we fit. So that was a pretty, pretty tough, tough year, 84. It was very, very tough. But somehow, some way, on the inside of me, I was able to dig deep and, and prepare for that next season. Because I knew after three years of big leagues, it was do or die from me. I was either going to be out of baseball or I was going to be a mainstay. And that was the first off season. The first really time in my life, but other than during a little bit of football, that I seriously lifted weights in the offseason and got prepared for a season. And I even boldly told, uh, I think it was Channel 4, Channel 6 at the time, they were doing an interview, and I, I promised them they would see a different Glenn Wilson. And uh, sure enough, you know, I went out and I had to win the right field job from John Wilson. And uh, I was implementing the lineup behind Schmidt. And of course, that was a year Schmidt uh, struggled early, and I made an all-star team because it, it seemed like every time I came to the plate uh, in the first half of the season, the bases were loaded, which was a list of two outs. So, getting all the hours became very, very easy, as so it felt. And once again, this is John Pialli, mayor of former Major League outfielder Glenn Wilson. And obviously, 85 becomes a big season for you. Like you just mentioned, make the all-star team. You're driving over 100 runs that year. And it's really when you got, you know, a very good chance to establish yourself. Now, you know, you, you end up, you know, through, through the course of your career with the Phillies being kind of a mainstay there. But, you know, the team the team was going through a transition. Was it uh was it difficult being a part of a team that was, you know, that was good before? And, you know, even even when Mike Schmidt during, you know, you know, the 86, he ends up winning the MVP. You know, this is still kind of a team that's kind of on its way, kind of retooling itself. So what, 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 do you, what, what were your feelings kind of going through those couple of years with the Phillies? You know, I was, uh, I was pretty selfish during those years in the fact that I was very determined to establish myself. And I realized with the arm that I had been gifted with, that I could stay in the big leagues and I could be an everyday player because of my defense. And if I worked hard on my defense, I'd stay in the lineup 
And, you know, by having the big year at 85 offensively, the next year, it seemed like a down year, even though I had 86 RBIs, instrument, but in the MVP, and I was pretty much predominantly the guy hitting behind him, so I was just protection. And if you, you know, the baseball way baseball world looks at things, and I took pride in that. Um, but being that player uh, that was pretty much established as your right fielder, and now you're trying to fill in the holes, you got Bond, you're trying Bond in center, and Bond had he's at the first base, and then they tried to experiment with Schmidt over at first because he was getting older. And Rick Shue at third base. We never could find a shortstop. We tried Steve Jones. Ron Jesus was getting older. Uh, so they, they, had, they, they couldn't fill in the middle of the field. And that's where most championship games are built, is from the middle out. You could catch it short, center field, second base, and then build around it. And we never, we never found a shortstop, and we never found who was going to be the mainstay in center. You know, Vaughn was a very good center fielder. He was, you know, a tall, lanky guy that could handle first base. So, uh, you know, we kept trying to find that center fielder also. And behind the dish, the Bobias had been uh, traded. We never found the mainstay behind the dish. We brought in Lance Paris the next year. He was unhappy. The Tigers had not picked up his option because of uh, all the, you know, the owners had gotten together and collusion had started. So I had gotten caught up in the middle of the riffraff on a team that I loved. I absolutely loved being a Philly. The fans made me a better player because, and there was only one other person that knew this, it was Jake Bristol. Even if you pissed me off, I would play better. And he went out of his way to do that. And that's what was really important that I learned. That if you know your players and what it is that makes them take or play better, then you use that. And Dave Bristol did that with me. And, of course, we were going through the transition of trying to make a, a AAA manager, a big league manager. And John Felsky's got no respect for the players. Uh, then Lee Hillier comes in, you know, he had been a, a guy that had been hanging around baseball for a long time, managed the Cubs, they, the Cubs were never a good team, and it wasn't Lee's fault. But then Lee inherits this team that everybody's still trying to find the pieces. So for me personally, it was a time of joy because I was an everyday player, established big league player, and I was looking forward to those pieces coming together also hoping that, you know, I would finally have that opportunity that I just missed out on with the Tigers and just missed out on with the Phillies not getting traded a year sooner. So it was tough, but I was enjoying it for one reason. The Philly organization treated you like a family. And that's what I loved about Bill Giles, about Dave Montgomery, about everybody involved in the organization, from Debbie Macedo all the way down to to Kelly who worked at the Falls at the front. I mean, it was a family organization, nothing like Detroit. Detroit was all business. But this felt like family, and I felt like I was a part of something. Now, listen. Of course, you know, Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, absolutely, man. You're not the first person that said that. I mean, there's been a lot of good things said about the, the Phillies, particularly the way they were run throughout the course of the 80s. 
I'll tell you one thing that was 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 pretty interesting that you brought up is the fact that you took a lot of pride in your defense, and you were known for you know having a very good throwing arm. You led the you know the National League in assists in '85 and '86. Uh, what do you what do you think was the was is the difference? Let's say then to now. Because if you go through the 70s and the 80s, and probably even a little bit earlier, the, the fact that outfielders, particularly right fielders, were known for having strong throwing arms. If you go through every team, every good team, they had a right fielder that can gun a guy out at any base. It's not so much the case anymore. No, that's gotten away from it because of all the offense that came into the game. you got to remember, after the non-World Series of 94, and I started making new ballparks. I made them smaller. The balls, people will say to this day, uh, they're not, but they were. They were wound tighter. Uh, ballparks were made smaller. The expansion of two new teams depleted pitching. So you have, I mean, you go to any big league game now and you see two to three guys on a team throwing 94 and above. Where back in my day, you had six guys throwing 94 all the way up to 100 miles an hour. We had at least one of those guys on every team and in every starting rotation. So if I, like when I was with the Phillies, I'm going in to play the Astros. I know I got Ryan, Scott, Nepper uh, in a three-game series. Of course, they're not in my division. But the fact that I know I've got Ryan, I'm hoping I get one hit there and one more. And you know, this is how major league players don't make it those teams. So. If I get that one hit, that one walk, I got a chance to get out of this series at 290 to 330 because I know I'm like Scott, I can get one hit. Now, even though he's becoming the, you know, the strong ball pitcher, supposedly fork ball pitcher, uh, I know that uh, it's going to be a battle. But Nepper, I know, is a cunning thumper. If I just wait on him, I've got two hits coming that game and probably, you know, three on the ice. Uh, because everybody else got us the same thing. We all felt the same way about the series that was coming up with pitching. For the game now, with the defense in the outfield, right field is not a, is, is important for that strongest arm because you can you can take a guy that hits 30 home runs a year, put him in the right field, or he's the speedster now as opposed to the way the game was built when I played. The center fielder was the speedster. The shortstop ran well. The second baseman was so-so runner. But uh, it was built around offense because you had more astroturf fields. Where now they've gone back to grass, shorter ballparks, or shorter fences, rather, and more offense is in the game. So pitching's going to continue to struggle until, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, they go back to bigger ballparks like, like they were when in the 80s. You had more big ballparks. Where, like now, I've seen, I haven't been to the new stadium in Philadelphia. I've seen it on television, and I'm going, oh my goodness. You know, it reminds me of, you know, uh, Tiger Stadium. Now it's short to right, short to left, and not that deep, but Tiger Stadium was deep to center, but. Billy's new stadium, I think it's Citizens Bank Park, correct? Yes. Uh, well, it's not that deep to center, so instead of having great defensive uh, play in, in your outfield as far as the arm, along with the ability to catch the ball and, and keep runners from going from first to third, you're going, okay, I can get away from that. That won't be as important if i got a guy that can hit 25 to 30 bombs there and possibly 40. 
No, right on. Right. More teams are building their, their organizations are building their, their big league team around offense as opposed to around the little things of defense that really aren't that little back in the 80s. Yeah, and I tell you, you look either way. I mean, you, know, you can make the case that a lot of a lot of teams that built their teams around power with small ballparks have had success. But you know, at the same time, I mean, play, you know, building a team around defense and making sure that you're you're right at the right positions worked as well. Oh, absolutely, and, and not to say that there's one right way to do it. I think you build your team since you're playing half of your games, eighty-one games. In your ballpark, you build a, you build your team around your ballpark. And if you have a small ballpark, I would probably do the same thing. But I would still want that intangible if I could find it for right field. I'd want that really strong arm for center. I would want that speedster, like an old Vince Coleman type. Uh, you know, and at first base in left field, you got your big thunder power guys that you know can't run. Third base nowadays. You've got to have that glove that you can pick it, but third base is also known as a power spot. If shortstop back in the 80s, a shortstop didn't have to hit 250. You had to pick every side. Where nowadays, you know, ever since Ripken came along, that became the prototypical shortstop. Yeah, you Everybody's looking for that guy, but you look at Jimmy Rollins, he's not that great big guy, but still, he's busting out a lot of bombs each year. Of course, he's in his 30s now, so you wonder now with the Phillies, I do anyways, because they are my favorite. And they always will be. You wonder what direction they're going to go now. Uh, I notice Howard's still out of the order. I don't know why. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen enough games. Uh, you look at their pitching. You know, you, you let some pretty good guys get away. But at the same time, uh, you still got Hamels and you got Lee. I'm wondering, you know, is Ryan Sandberg just a lame duck uh, interim manager, which I would think it is, uh, knowing the Phillies the way I know them. Uh, I don't see him being a big league manager. He's not authoritative enough, in my opinion. I love Ryan Sandberg, the person and the player, but the manager just, you can see on television the look in his eye. It's like, uh, okay, I'm here. No, no personality, no authoritative figure, uh, not a, certainly not a Charlie Manuel personality. At the same time, the personality's got to fit today's player as opposed to vice versa when I played where you had to fit the manager's personality. Like, all on it, and I went with the Pusticos twice. Uh, but that's what I needed. That's what made me better. The manager would stand up and tell me, this is how it's done. By God, we're not doing this. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Phillies move forward from all that they're going through. Now, very true, man. And once again, this is John Pielli with former Major League outfielder Clem Wilson. Uh, you know, you know as, as you move on in your career, you, know, you end up, uh, you know, one, one moment that stands out, you hit two home runs against Randy Johnson. And they're, they're the first two home runs that he gives up in his, you know, future Hall of Fame career. And he actually hit three of the first five against him. Uh, what, 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 did, what was going through your mind to a point where you felt like you could really get a good swing against a guy with as much talent as Randy Johnson? Um, it, you know, I caught him when he was young. He hadn't learned to pitch in the big leagues. He was pretty much just a hard thrower. I loved hard throwers, especially guys that threw over the top. Even though he was 6'10", the tallest pitcher ever, it was, I don't know, they were comfortable. I was comfortable at the plate. He never threw me inside. 
to get me uncomfortable. Uh, it was just one of those deals where it was like, you know, the first at bat, I think I fouled a pitch off and the next one I hit out with a fastball. And the next time he tried to throw a slider, which back then he did not have the slider he developed later in his career. So, you know, the timing is, you know, a lot of people say it's everything. Well, it's a lot of things. So I caught him at a good time. And it was just, for me, it was an easy at bat. Uh, only because he, he was a rookie. I knew he didn't know how to pitch, but I knew he could throw hard, and I loved hard. So I was just really fortunate to be the right place at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one more thing. You got a chance in the 1987 season to pitch, you know, a, a mop-up inning in a game, you know, for the Phillies against the New York Mets. And, you know, you end up striking out Howard Johnson. And, of course, Howard Johnson, you and him get come up with, you know, the Tigers organization. You know, tell, take us a little bit of back to that day. I know it wasn't probably wasn't the best of days, you know, with you having to come in to pitch. But, you know, how did it feel to be able to strike out one of the guys that came up at the same time as you with Detroit? The hardest part was Lee and Tommy don't embarrass the game. And I was uh, on the inside. I was like a little kid. And it was my first day in a big league stadium. I was so excited to get to pitch that inning, But I had to act like uh, I'd done it. And don't embarrass the game was what I was told. So on the outside, it, I, don't, I don't know. It was just, to me, it was easy. <laughs> I just felt very confident because... I was that kind of personality that throw me in a situation I'm not used to, and I'm okay with that. It, it didn't. I had no fear. And and as most ball players will tell you, ninety percent of the of the battle is not having any fear of failure, any fear of injury, or any fear of any kind. And uh, with what I've learned over the last eight years in scripture, I mean that's it's so true. That means so true. Fear is such a detriment to, to athletes as well as people uh, that it can destroy them. And that was the beauty of what I had inside of me is that I had no fear of failure. And getting to face Hojo was a blast. And if you see the replay, I don't know if you've ever seen it on YouTube. Uh, it's on there now. And it's also on my uh, website, baseball-connect. Uh, you can see it there. But... Those are not all curveballs I'm throwing. Those are split fingers. <laughs> and the only reason I wasn't airing it out is because when I warmed up, I tried to throw a couple of pitches hard, and I realized right away, wait a minute, that, that I felt a little twins in my shoulder, and I'm like, I'm not going to hurt myself doing this. So I just was throwing split fingers at Darren Dalton uh, behind the plate, and, and he knew how much fun I was having. And, and we became in sync after a while, and it, it was just probably the most yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pialli, mayor of former Major League Outfielder Glenn Wilson. Now, you know, before I let you go, just give a little plug for your website and everything you're doing with that so listeners can check it out. Oh, uh, I will, John. Thank you so much for that. Uh, first, I published my book, Autobiography. It's titled Headed Home. You can pick it up at Amazon.com. And uh, again, the title that is Headed Home, an MLB All-Star Search for Truth. And my website is called Baseball-Connect. And you can, you can go on there and look at it now. It'll be launched in two weeks. And what it's designed to do is to help high school baseball players around the country get their stats, their videos, their, their you know, obviously their pictures in front of every college in the country we're tied into. 
and every pro organization it's available to and will be tied into them in two weeks also. Uh, so if you're a high school baseball player and you've got aspirations of playing college ball, it's going to cost you 15 bucks a month to promote yourself as opposed to uh, hiring a recruiting service with charges anywhere from 25 to $7,500. So uh, we also give you some scripture daily, uh, daily devotional, read or read if you want to. And, but the biggest key to that website is every kid should have the same opportunity as the kid whose parents have a lot of money. And that's what this website was designed to do. So any high school player can get his abilities, his name, his face in front of every college in the country now by logging on to baseball-connect.com, paying 15 bucks a month. You can upload as many videos as you want. And you're also going to have former major league players. And we now are getting to do contracts with some current major league players. When they see your videos, if they see something that uh, they think they can help you with, they're going to give you comments also. Now, listen, it's great to see you giving back to the game. And obviously, uh, you know, best of luck with everything that you're doing with it. And I appreciate having a couple minutes to speak with you, man. Thank you for having me. I look forward. I'll be up in Havertown on the uh, 15th or 14th of February. I'll be up there with Coach Bowman and Coach Bowman's team. And uh, I'll be signing you're in the area, you're in Havertown, I'm on September the, the 14th or 15th. Check your, uh, check the website or check my, uh, my, my uh, website or Facebook page at Baseball Connect. I'll be up there signing autographs and I'll have some of my books with me also. All right, Glenn. Thanks a lot, man. Okay, brother. Talk to you later. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot with Glenn Wilson. I tell you, he gets in a lot of deep stuff there when he talks about the frustration when he was traded from the Detroit Tigers, stuff that you probably you probably don't even know goes through the mind of a Major League Baseball player. And I hope you guys got a chance to listen to that because that was some powerful stuff. And obviously, you know, a guy who had a very good career, and we talked about the importance of a right field throwing arm, which is certainly not as important now as it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So we're going to take a little bit of a break, and we'll be back, finish up the first hour, past ball show, MTR Radio Network. Back after this. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. We're finishing up the first hour here. Uh, we're getting in a little bit of AL pennant races. New York Yankees dropped a couple games to the Tampa Bay Rays last weekend. A lost the first game to the Toronto Blue Jays. And they're kind of at a situation where I've said before, they got to go out there and win. 
And if they don't win on a consistent level at a consistent basis, then we're not going to be talking potential playoffs here in September. But I think I do think you got to factor in what the other teams are doing right now. And, you know, you look at the Boston Red Sox when they go into Los Angeles against the Dodgers, as much of a juggernaut as they've been since they've gone on this run with Yasiel Puig and with Hanley Ramirez and with Kershaw and Greinke and Ryu and everything that's gone right for the Dodgers. The fact that the Red Sox went out there to L.A. and took two out of three shows that they're not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think the Yankees are starting to get themselves in a position are like, all right, if we play good baseball, we're going to need somebody to crash. And if the Red Sox aren't crashing, if the Tampa Bay Rays aren't crashing, then that leaves one prospective wildcard spot for the Yankees to be shooting for. And they're not the only ones doing it. You know, you got the Cleveland Indians. You got the Oakland Athletics. Now, if you want to point at one team that has struggled, that may be on a decline, it's the Oakland Athletics. The Oakland Athletics have played very good baseball. They did for the entire 2012 season, for the first half of the 2013 season, and now they've hit a bit of a skit. They're struggling now. They're in a tough situation. They may not win the AL West, which obviously puts them in the pool to win a wild card spot. I know they got some good young pitching. Their bullpen's good. They got some offense, but Josh Reddick's hurt now. Cespedes hasn't been that great. Brandon Moss is a 30-home run guy. He hasn't been a 30-home run guy. I have some questions if I'm the Oakland Athletics, and part of it is you know, the fact that I don't have much faith in them, but you know, the other part is the fact that they are in a situation where they're on the decline. They're struggling, and that's the spot that I would shoot for. But you know, it's not just the Yankees. It's the Baltimore Orioles, the Cleveland Indians. I know the Kansas City Royals have dropped a little bit, but I would have some concern if I was the Oakland Athletics as far as it being that easy to get back into the postseason. I mean, last year, they were kind of the darlings of the league. Everybody thought, oh, my God, the Oakland Athletics, they spent no money, and look at how great they are. Well, it's not that easy. And they played very good baseball, better baseball than I thought through the first part of the season. But now they're in a situation where they're, they're struggling. And how does a team like that get through it will certainly determine what ends up happening there. But if I'm the New York Yankees, i got to be happy with what you're seeing out of the Oakland Athletics, that they're a team that's struggling. And they need a team or two to struggle if they want to get themselves back in a race. But the most important part, if you're the New York Yankees, you got to focus on winning games. You can't give up games with Phil Hughes on the mound. You can't say every fifth time, you know, every time that Phil Hughes grabs a ball, it's going to be a loss. They, you know, they, they're going to need more out of their starting pitching, not just better from Hughes, but they need better CeCe Sabathia. They need better Andy Pettit. You know, Ivan Nova has got to continue to pitch well. Hiroki Kuroda has had a couple bad starts. If I'm the New York Yankees, I'm still not buying it. I'm not buying the New York Yankees in the postseason yet. Give me another week, maybe it'll change. But I tell you, they got to start winning games, particularly against teams like the Toronto Blue Jays. I don't care if they're playing in Toronto, in the Sky Dome, Rogers Center, the whole thing. They got to go out. They got to beat this team. They got to beat the Jays while they're down. And we'll get into it a little bit in the second hour about, you know, the Blue Jays' managerial situation and how I think the Jays have absolutely tanked it since the second half of this season starts. But I want to thank Glenn Wilson for being part of the program here. we got a lot more stuff to get into in a second hour of the Passball Show right here, brought to you by johnpielli.com on the MTR Radio Network. We'll be back in five minutes.